Hello, and welcome back to Dagish America Presents. I'm your host, Ben Harl, and I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about the industry that I work in. Last episode, we spent some time talking to Pat Hoddle about the India Mill Moth, and if you haven't had a chance yet, please go back and give it a listen. In this episode, we'll be speaking to James Miller about stored product beetles. James Miller is the market manager at Trace Incorporated, an industry leader in pheromone monitoring and mating disruption technology. Please help me welcome James to the podcast. James, thanks so much for agreeing to take some time out of your very busy schedule to uh, help us uh, get some more information on some of these stored product beetles. No problem, Ben. Hey, thank you so much and glad to see you uh, kicking and screaming and doing so well with Dagish. It's an awesome <laughs> uh, an awesome addition to their team you make. So, Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. So I want to start out just for anybody who doesn't know who you are, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Right. I am the market manager for the professional pest division at Trace Incorporated, namely uh, StoreGuard, uh, insect monitoring pheromones, and sidetrack mating disruption for Indian meal moth and soon-to-be cigarette beetle. I spent almost a decade with uh, a Rollins subsidiary industrial fumigant company. And I'm on my ninth year here with Trace. And I am a rare breed that I was a dealer mechanic for Toyota before I got involved in the pest management world. So worked every job on the way up this ladder and uh, kind of used that experience to interact with our clients and people down the road. And I think it brings a different perspective. So uh, I cover pretty much worldwide urban post-harvest industrial pest problems for our company. So yeah, that's terrific. It's interesting to hear you say that you, I don't want to say started late in a career, but that you actually had a kind of a different career before you started. Because I, I, I'm similar. I actually was a welder for a few years uh, before right I got into pest control. So uh, I, I worked in different industry as well. And then a good friend of mine kind of coaxed me into the industry, so to speak. And I also started at the bottom rung of the ladder, you know, killing insects in restaurants in the middle of the night and worked my way that's up uh, to where I'm at now. So similar stories. That's pretty interesting. It's exact. That's exactly it. A friend of mine, I was working on his company fleet vehicle at the Toyota dealer, and he kept saying, "You know, you should try this. You should try this." And I said, "Fine." Yeah. And uh, the <laughs> first the first weekend was a, a methyl bromide fumigation, and my area manager said, "Seal the window." And I looked at him and said, "What's a seal? <laughs> and why are we sealing the window?" And then I realized how far in over my head I would be, and I needed to start learning. So. It was uh, it was cool, man. But uh, you know, nineteen years later, here we are, right? Or well, shoot for you, even more, right? No, no, you and I, I, I got about twenty years, so we're oh, we're great! Pretty, I always thought you had more than that. I keep forgetting. That. I'm going to be forty this year, so. No, I've uh, I've got just uh, just about twenty years in myself. So I got a little bit a little bit of a later start in. in you know, I was a welder for quite a while before I uh, uh-huh. jumped careers. So that explains the work ethic that you have. Now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, so. So, uh, you know, let's just dive right in. You know, I'm, I wanted to talk about stored product beetles because we run into them a lot in our industry. You know, they're, they're very prevalent in our industry. And so, and we have a, a few that are, we see more often than others. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, bring in an expert to kind of give us uh, some information on the different physiology, characteristics, habits, and so on and so forth with a few of mm-hmm. these different insects. So I wanted to start out with one that, that I've seen a lot in my career which is the cigarette beetle. Uh, So I was kind of hoping you could kind of dive in and give us a little bit of information on the cigarette beetle. So cigarette beetle, uh, Laceoderma sericornin. The best thing I could say about this is from Dr. Tom Phillips at K-State University. He's, I always try to give credit where it's due, where I learn. Like we've talked about our intro, right? So there's a lot of wiser men and women that have guided my path throughout the years. But he, uh, his quote, and I've heard this from him, so who knows it was someone else that a uh, cigarette beetle is essentially a moth in beetle clothing. And uh, he said that when he was working on the infancy of mating disruption. And it struck a chord because when you look at the life cycle and characteristics of that species, I mean, it really is. You know, it it has complete metamorphosis, different uh, instars of the larvae. Uh, The adults are not generally long-lived. Now, as a opposed to, you know, being the, quote, moth, right? The adults are more colonistic, if you will, uh, the different sites of infestation and things of that nature. But they're often confused with uh, drugstore beetle, which is Stegobium panaceum. 
And the key takeaway for, let's just say, field expedient identification is the striations on the wing pads of the drugstore beetle run vertically. And the cigarette beetle has no striations on its wing pads. So that's a a quick way in the field of kind of noting the difference. Um, Their significance, though, ranges from infestation of commercial commodities such as tobacco, uh, coffee, heavy into the spice industry. And then anything that touches like bakery goods or anything that's been blended past uh, just grain-based flour. So the weird part is in, you know, flour manufacturing, they're really, they hardly ever show up as a pest, but once they get to the the mixing or blending side or, uh, you know, bake, cakery mix, cake mixes, and then anything further than that, uh, they can become a very serious pest. Uh, the cool thing, and especially as of late with these insects, and there's a couple other ones that touch the same category, is their ability to uh, just remain in nature as a feral population. And uh, we've been doing some work in the spice industry in Texas, uh, the Dallas metro area. And I've coined the phrase of the cigarette beetle is the state beetle of Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Because no joke, when they open the doors to these spice facilities, and some of them are loading docks, uh, they'll they'll have a huge healthy population outdoors that can become an indoor infestation and vary through late spring through kind of fall. And that, that's a mitigation tactic that you have to actually consider to employ with these. But they're a hardy insect. Uh, they're able to become tolerant and resistant to, as you know, pyrethroids, to you know, phosphine fumigants. Uh, more, more of what we've learned is their ability to essentially stop breathing. The respiration rate pr- pretty much stops due to their genetic exposure. And that's not a dig, by the way, an active ingredient per se. That's a that's more of a dig at we look at ourselves of uh, efficacious fumigation techniques and understanding how to strategically use these products. And we've you know we've gotten away from that in some of these facets and get back to it. But uh, the cigarette beetle is by far either in some industries enemy number one or enemy number two. Um, I rank it probably number two, but number one on the harder scale to mitigate. Yeah, I would agree. You know, and it's interesting that you bring up, you know, that you will find these beetles, the cigarette beetles, uh, in a natural environment. I think that's something a lot of people don't think about when they look at stored product insects. They don't take into consideration that you will have a natural population outside of these facilities in a lot of areas. You know, we're kind of educated or schooled a little bit to think about, uh, you know, certain ways that the the infestation starts. And typically what what we're always led to believe is that they normally start through inbound product. And that does happen. But it also happens with native populations that are in the wild that will come into facilities through open open doorways. And that's a, you know, a great reason why you know, structural integrity of facilities is is so important. And and again, you know, any crack and crevice, these cigarette beetles are hardy. They'll find a way in if they're determined enough. But structural integrity of facilities, keeping doors closed, keeping screens on doors, that's going to help a lot. It's going to help mitigate uh, those natural populations from coming into these facilities. So I think it's it's important to know that that potential exists. Yeah, and a lot to be said. And we're you know we kind of went down a, a the feral exterior thing, but. You don't, there's not much you can do to stop them in that environment other yeah. than what you said about gaining entry into a specified uh, facility or structure. But the knowledge, right, the the ability to get a snapshot in time of what's outside of your stated facility, man, that's, that's information that you should have, you need to have, and you don't need to have it permanently installed. So it's a, you could do a three-day or a week-long monitoring system just to give you a gauge on the population a couple times a year and then get rid of it. Now, you can use it as a a kind of a subversive technique of keeping them on a fence line versus hitting a dock area so you capture more of the males. There's a lot of things we could discuss as far as like implementing permanent programs, but um, as far as the outdoor monitoring, um, I mean, and and a lot of that goes, I mean, just not now that we're not talking about it, but like with grain base, lesser grain borer. I mean, I remember being on the Maumee River in northern Ohio and, you know, watching marine vessels unload and the swarm of lesser grain borers <laughs> just going into the tree environment. And, you know, they do require a whole kernel and things like that to complete their life cycle. But we got we've got to remember that these are living biological species and they're more diverse than we ever give them credit for. And if we don't 
exclude or understand that data that they can give us based on their biology, you know, it can make it harder for the control techniques. So no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. You know, the to to quote Jurassic Park of all things, you know, life will find a way. Right, <laughs> if you give dude. these insects an opportunity to grow and change and alter themselves to fit the environment they find themselves in, they will figure out a way to make it happen uh, more often than not. <laughs> so it's a challenge, and it's one you know that we will probably fight for decades and decades, you know, right. because as, as they morph and as their uh, habits change and genetically they alter and change, we're going to have to find new ways to combat them. Yes, um, so I, you said that for you, cigarette beetles are number two. I would assume, and, and I think this is probably a good assumption, that, that you would consider the red and confused flower beetles as the number one pest in the United States. Is, would that be correct? So old James... In the service industry, absolutely. Now that I'm kind of a little more of a 100-yard look behind it, it's Indian mule moth. But Indian mule moth is a lot more social and easy to deal with and understandable and short-lived. And it's it's a very common – but worldwide, that's the number one store product insect in the world is by far in Indian mule moth, Plodia interpunctella. Tribolium species, the the red and confused – are some of the hardest and uh, hardiest insects to eradicate from and prevent in our food process. So I think you're you're right at the same time uh, in saying that it, it is a number one pest. Uh, but at you know approaching it from my angle, I consider that more the number three. Okay. But all that being said, these are semantics of. You know, you you work for a, a fumigation uh, manufacturer, and uh, dude, when I was in that side of the world, yep, that was enemy number one. It was <laughs> right, that yeah. of uh, was the of the flower beetle species, and then you know, then secondary would probably be cigarette beetle, and then third would be Indian mule moth because we understand how easy it is. But when you kind of get out of the food safety realm into the whole scope of you know urban industrial pest management, that's where Indian mule moth starts to become like number one. Uh, and, and, and the funny part is the reason for that is a lot of people don't monitor for them. I mean, you have a social insect that flutters at kind of twilight night and they're following a strong sex pheromone. You could see those insects without any sort of monitoring system. Right. You know, taking flight, even cigarette beetle, uh, warehouse beetle too. But for flower beetle, I mean, while reds can fly, you know, they're destroying in, in, in and around things and they're not only going to take flight if they need to or hit a population density. So not a lot of people are alert to that. And, you know, 2013, we came out with our pre-baited line of monitoring systems, the quick change. And a lot of people switched over to that because it's stewarded time and labor and new technology. And believe it or not, the number one technical complaint that we had was I don't know how to identify all these new insects we're catching. <laughs> and no joke, a bunch of them were tribolium species or, you know, cryptolestes, something that looks like a flower beetle or whatever. But uh, but that that was the number one because they've never monitored for it outside of the world you and I, well, you lived in more of a generalized because you did restaurant and other commercial entities and things of that where I, I didn't get into that in the first 10 years of my career because it was just large food and commodity manufacturing and storage sites and things like that. So, but those insects cause a ton of problems. Uh, There's not a true sexual based pheromone for them. It's only an aggregate. So it's not as good as monitoring um, as the other ones. And I mean, shoot, they can live up to two years, Uh, you know, confused in red flower beetle up to two years in their entire life cycle. uh, That that's a long lived insect. If you let it replicate and then you know, getting to the kill stages or the life cycle mitigation techniques is not as easy as the other ones that are social and fly around. These, you have to be very strategic. You have to use good penetration techniques, very good sanitation. You know, those insects, they're an enigma and uh, it's an interesting world, but by far that's kind of where those little dudes go. Yeah. The top two beetles, at least, that I've ran into in my career have been the uh, cigarette beetle and the red and confused flower beetle. And so, yeah, I agree with everything that you just said. But they're not difficult to identify necessarily, but right. it, once you get used to it, but they're difficult to control. And all beetle species, stored product beetle species, are, in my opinion, a little bit more difficult to control than the moth species just because of their physiology and their habits. So, you know, you did also briefly mention the warehouse beetle. What do you think about the warehouse beetle? What can you tell us about that? So warehouse beetle is an interesting insect because the adults are far more, it's far more different than the 
Dr. Phillips analogy of the moth and beetle, or excuse me, <laughs> yeah. the beetle and moth clothing, because uh, warehouse beetle, you know, the adults readily consume organic material and pollen. They they can be, you know, three, four months lived in adult form, uh, which is out of the norm for, you know, cigarette beetle or Indian meal moth. And when you get to the sect of Trogoderma species, just in, I think it was at the ICE conference, the ESA ICE, which is International Congress of Entomology, uh, the one, the last one that was live was in Orlando, and someone uh, made a paper presentation on the feral species of Trochoderma in Michigan alone, and using you know the sexual-based pheromone and then a funnel-style trap just in nature, and they collected something in excess of fourteen different Trochoderma species. Wow, that occur out there, and. Number one, identification is a problem anytime you're dealing with the Trogoderma species as far as the adults go. Females are always, you know, and usually in insect world, this maintains the same. Females are usually larger, but in the case of like warehouse beetle, they're a lot larger. So a lot of misidentification earlier on in my career that I've seen was, you know, black carpet beetles, which are not a Trogoderma. That's more of a dermestid of a fabric, hide, animal, flesh style organic material insect where not not really a food or a, a stored product insect but warehouse beetles certainly are but you have larger cabinet beetle um the list goes on and on and on but this kind of fell into a very and you know fairly speaking especially north of the mason dixon line like where you live and up they are very readily occurring in nature we have a I have a strong past record of dealing with them fairly infiltrating structures and commercial facilities from the outside to the inside and, you know, they're not always a stored product pest because in nature, it's in nature, but they, they're opportunistic like all insects are. And if they're able to get in, they could do some serious damage. The biggest concern when you start to deal with dermestage and trogoderma, right, is uh, the larval hairs um, that can become lodged in infants' throats uh, if it infested, you know, infant food or formula. Uh, and then domestic uh, pet animals, uh, dogs and cats, if the dog food or the cat food became infested with either trogoderma or dermestids, um, those fibers, those hairs can cause allergic reactions yeah. um, in certain people. And, you know, that that's a serious health risk. So that kind of elevated their status. But again, when the whole pre-baited monitoring system started to come to the market, the general pest industry, which I don't really consider you and I a part of the general, well, we are now, but in our infancy, <laughs> right. we were more specific, right? We were very tailored to our the craft that we were in of a, a small market segment. I always used monitoring systems for them, but it wasn't until later in the career where you realize a lot of people, you know, it's just an Indian meal moth trap, and they even call it a pantry moth trap. They throw it out. They weren't monitoring for these insects, and, and the same thing goes when we did the, the pre-baiting stuff down, more and more conversations. I didn't realize how many of the warehouse beetles we have. Also, identification of the adult, we talked about that. Uh, there are PhD scientists that have tough time keying out adults. So usually you need to have one of the instars of larvae to actually understand that it is true warehouse beetle or is it cabinet beetle or is it another one? Now, for you and I's our discussion here, it's in essence, it, it's a moot point. It's kind of like red versus confused flower beetle. <laughs> right. well, the control and prevention tactics are the same, same as the other one, but you know, we should always strive like we're, we're, you're, what you're doing here, continuing education and um, philosophical discussion on our industry, we should strive to know what the bug is and the insect and things of that nature. Uh, but man, I tell you what, in certain facilities, that was number one, uh, warehouse beetle problems. And the only good part is though, and I like this, it's kind of like Indian meal moth. It was also one of the easier ones for me to uh, mitigate, control, and then further prevent for the facility. Because once you're wrapped around that, it's not like flower beetle. It's not like internal feeders and stuff of that nature. But it's it's more of a, a of a social style insect, and you can you can prevent it. You can treat it really well. It reacts really good to the modes of active ingredients on the market. Growth regulators are amazing on these insects because yes. uh, of the larval cycle and exposure. So you could do a lot with these bugs uh, to solve. I mean, they're light attracted as well. We can't overlook that. As far as the monitoring aspect, you know, they are ULV light attracted, so you can capture them just like cigarette beetle and Indian meal moth in, in a light trap. But the big one with that, though, would be going back to the hazard for food safety. Uh, and, and you know, can't reiterate that enough. I'm sure if people have, you know, you can you get your Google Kung Fu out and uh, <laughs> large commercial food manufacturers have had serious recalls based off of warehouse beetle larvae contaminating product. And it's, it's a concern. So... 
just like everything, you realize that you mitigate the risk and they go forward. And uh, we need to make sure we do that, especially in our homes, too. If you're storing dog and cat food, you should have them in sealed devices and you should be watching for that because in most cases, people love their domestic animals more than they love other people. <laughs> so, uh, you know, food safety is a big thing. And that's why the food safety of, you know, animal food is the same as human now. Yeah. Because, well, we love our animals and they're domesticated and some some humans do consume animal food, uh, whether it's on purpose or on accident, like a, a bowl of dog food on the ground and a toddler. They yeah. may get a handful before you can catch them. And, you know, you got to make sure they're it's fit for human consumption. So Yeah, those are all absolutely excellent points. You know, I, going back to talking about feral populations, you know, I mean, it, it's very easy for insects to come into your home. You know, I mean, they call them pantry pests for a reason. It's some of the first places that you find them is in your home, your pantry at home. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Sealing up all of your products, including your pet foods, and eliminating that chance for infestation is, is pretty important. A yeah, side tour on that, if I may, and this is more of a personal happening. It's kind of relevant to the discussion. So you, you just mentioned, you know, and reiterated and kind of focused in on that of, of storing things properly to prevent infestation. And just in my own house, my wife... <laughs> was doing her own research on the plastics uh, of certain storage vessels and the leaching ability due to the oils in some of the animal food yeah. um, can cause problems, you know, years down the road inside of these, uh, you know, domestic cats and dogs. So she wants to keep the pet food instead of it being in this hermetically sealed container, which, you know, if you know, you know food grade style containers, yeah. uh, she wants to leave it in the package, which is, you know, the barrier foil that's treated and meant to carry the food for long term. So now we've had to develop a plan of resealing. And I have a seven <laughs> and a nine year old that help with all these home chores. We have to keep these things sealed and you know try to prevent the entrance of insects and it's not in the sealed so we're folding things where it's like <laughs> the, the youtube video of how to fold a chip bag you know yeah. and it's the same kind of thing and then the two chip and it's funny i have uh and i i know it's not an active ingredient you guys make but i have a ton of profume chip clip bags yeah oh yeah, yeah <laughs> i need to yeah. get some dagish ones <laughs> because i have a ton of them and then some trace ones and those are what we're using so i always joke to her like they have no idea about any of this stuff and i'm like well here's a, a trace chip clip bag and then the profume one there which is ironic because it's an active ingredient you can use to control these things and yeah. <laughs> it's here it's it's helping me prevent the infestation because they gave these away at a conference so yeah um, that's funny but anyway just an option <laughs> What about sawtooth grain beetles? What can you tell us about sawtooth grain beetles? Well, earlier on in my career, I'd say about three or four years in, we were dealing with a, a warehousing situation that was a, a form of quick heat and eat soups. And sawtooth grain beetle was that main, was that was my first main issue with that insect. Uh, they were inside the soup containers. Think of it like the, you know, you, you crack the cardboard or plastic style lid, you put your hot water in, you shut the lids, wait for two minutes, and then you can eat it. So it's almost sure. a ready to eat product. Yeah. Well, the sawtooth grain beetle would float to the top <laughs> in, the, in, in the quality assurance audits they were doing. And I'll tell you what, they're, man, about a third the size of a pavement ant, super fast, can be up to three years in their adult life in the perfect situation. And when we talk about years and life cycle, the audience always has to understand and with a grain of salt that it's all dependent on everything, you know, how long something can live. So in general, we're talking about that. But I consider those insects like a tertiary feeder because they are almost always a sign of out-of-date product or a sanitation problem. These insects kind of, and it's very similar to merchant grain beetle, and they're kind of like the confused versus red flower beetle. Um, there's a node underneath the eyes of the, I believe it's the merchant grain beetle that the sawtooth doesn't have, and then the merchant can fly. It might be vice versa, by the way. You know, I'm not sitting in front of an insect here. <laughs> right. But merchant can fly, sawtooth cannot, but they look very similar. And again, the mitigation techniques are the same. It's, we should strive to have proper ID. But when I, when I see those, Number one, the monitoring systems for them are either blunder, physical inspection, like seeing them, or like a blend of caramone oils, which is a competition of food resources. So you're not going to catch 50 or 100 if it's heavily infested, like Indian meal moth or cigarette beetle or even tribolium, flower beetle species. You're only going to catch one or two or three, but that could equal 100. So when you catch one, that should be your all hands on deck alert that, hey, right. I got one. 
it hit in this small area and look for out-of-date product, stuff that hasn't been rotated, anything grain-based-ish in general they'll be infesting and then or or retention labs and i'll tell you what the uh i can't remember who i can give credit this to because i always like to give credit to anyone that's had an analogy or a conversation point of uh someone likened the sawtooth grain beetle to the american cockroach once you got them you always got them <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i thought i said how funny is that because you you know American cockroaches, it's very sewer-driven, very large insect, very moves fast, uh, very hardy, and they can replicate quickly. And, you know, if you're dealing with them in a sewer structure like old breweries I used to have, it's just a constant battle. You yeah. can never get them to leave. You can just try to keep preventing and treating. And with, with sawtooth green beetle, it's almost similar to that of they spread and move so quick, and they're able to chew through packaging and certain materials and cross-infest. They're a tough little bugger. Luckily, a lot of the fumigants work very well on them. Right. Uh, their eggs are very susceptible. A lot of the fogging agents can work very well on them. Pyrethroids still work well. So you have a lot of different techniques. But And again, it's one of those insects that you don't know until you know because the monitoring systems, while there, there are some that do have offerings and can work, the thresholds aren't understood. So you might look at it as an operator that doesn't understand that one could equal 100. He sees one and thinks, well, that's like one Indian meal moth. It's not really a problem. It could have been an incidental. It could have been a blunder. Uh, could have flew in or whatever. But lo and behold, that one sawtooth or merchant green beetle can lead to some serious problems if you didn't have your threshold set at that specific area. Yeah. Well, and the nice thing about the sawtooth green beetle from an identification perspective is barring the merchant green beetle, which they're very similar in appearance, the sawtooth green beetle looks quite a bit different than most of the other stored product uh, oh, beetles that we deal with. The scary looking little guy when you put it under a microscope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they have those saw-like ridges on their sides. Yeah. They're very easily identifiable once you have them under a microscope or yes, a magnifying glass for sure. So. I only have one more stored product beetle that I want to talk about. And then we'll, and after that, we'll kind of change gears a little bit. But okay. what can you tell us about weevils? Right. So the, the biggest thing to understand with weevils, and again, you just mentioned it with sawtooth, the identification characteristics, yeah. uh, the snout, right? So the three main weevils are uh, maize, granary, and uh, rice weevil. And all but the one, even the one rice weevil, uh, they require the whole kernel to complete their life cycle. So with granary and maize, if you're finding these insects or think you have susceptibility, just look to do you process store or warehouse anything that's whole grain based, the whole wheat kernel, uh, the whole corn kernel, um, the rice kernel itself, those kind of things. Now, the caveat to that, as I mentioned, was, you know, rice weevil has been known to infest pasta. And I, I just said it needs the whole kernel. Right. And then I'm telling someone that it infests pasta. And that's the, the problem is they'll actually bore into and use the side of pasta, the thicker side, as essentially a kernel to complete their life cycle. There's enough of the protein content from either the durum wheat or if it's a more economical grade of pasta, just, you know, regular uh, you know, soft red wheat or whatever they're using for, for manufacturing that. But you do have them very prevalent. That, you know, them and sawtooth grain beetle are kind of the number one and two in the pasta industry as far as the biggest proliferators of the stored pasta uh, manufacturing can deal with tribolium as well. But weevil species are, are very indicative of the whole kernel. And that leads right into mitigation techniques. You have to be able to penetrate the kernel to get control over the whole life cycle. So, you know, those species of internal feeders require those fumigant chemistries that can permeate and get through to that insect because otherwise it's not there um, and they're readily sealing their holes up. So the, the commodity side will see more of those issues. The pasta manufacturers see more of them, but the world that we live in is the, the natural, the organics, the farm to fork, all that, and we have so much of these products that are whole kernel now going to the final consumer. They're not in an in-process where they go through a processing plant and the kernel's smashed or milled. Um, but, you know, you could have a snack bar that could have 10 different kinds of <laughs> seeds and kernels in it, and yeah. that means that manufacturing facility has to consider weevils um, for monitoring, and it falls into that same boat as far as monitoring of sawtooth green beetle. You know, it's only really caramone oils, blunders, or visual physical inspection. Uh, now, the good news is you could do probing of grain-based stuff. 
And you got to be careful with how you do that because especially on a vessel, if it's transporting in a train or or on a truck over the road, as the vibration goes, the smaller insects move to the outside where the walls are. And a lot of the probes go right for the middle. Yep. And, uh, and they do that because that's where, you know, hey, if we go in the middle, it's the best chance of getting everything that's there. Well, sometimes you want to take your probe from the outside too because you need to understand as you move, vibration moves these insects out and uh, goes through that nature. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of facets of growth regulators for full contact with commodity are a big thing now. Uh, silo storage. I mean, the last two years uh, of the pandemic, and then now we're going into this, the, the, you know, we have inflation and you know, the price of goods is going up. So we're really worrying about our commodities as far as holding up, being fit for human consumption. And these weevils can decimate certain commodities and just turn it to dust. Because once oh, yeah. that insect, uh, the life cycle emerges from the kernel of wheat, that kernel is useless. It's eating out the entire substance of what the, say, the wheat kernel does uh, or the corn kernel. So you know, where the other insects are kind of feeding on the fines or the parts or pieces, these little guys are drilling a hole, dropping their egg on the inside, filling the hole, and that egg goes through that larval life cycle change, and it's going to consume every little bit of protein it can from that kernel and then emerge. In the past, it's been interesting being in some of the grain elevators to flour mills. I mean, you could smell the wheat that was milled with infested kernels that had no essential proteins left in it or wheat germ in the middle or anything like that. You could smell it had this weird off-putting scent to it. And it's essentially useless. It's like a feed-in product at a 1% rate if they could even get away with it in some of these areas. So it's a big problem. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we also have bull weevil too, but that's you know, cotton market and not something to consider. That's an agricultural-based pest and, you know, for the most part eradicated uh, but we, weevils are tough, but they are by by far a primary feeder. So they need that kernel, or in the case of pasta, the rice weevil. Um, and then some of them can fly, some of them cannot fly. Again, you can't be indicative onto uh, seeing or observing that flight for identification. You need to put them under a microscope and key them out to understand that and go forward. So with weevils too, we should quickly discuss boring insects. Not boring like our conversation here, but <laughs> yeah. boring like putting a hole in things like a lesser grain borer, larger grain borer. Yeah. Um, coffee berry borer is another one that attacks green coffee beans, albeit more when it's on the tree, but it can get its way downstream as a boring insect. Um, and, and those fall into that exact same. They're stronger flyers. You know, lesser grain borer kind of looks like a larger cigarette beetle, kind of in a, in a nutshell. But they'll, they'll do the same thing. They'll attack these whole kernels and just decimate them in their life cycle and over time. And it requires these products that can permeate. And there's only a few of them that are registered. And that market is, you know, the active ingredient market isn't going to come out because it's just overregulated. And, it, you know, it costs a lot of money to make a new active for these fumigants. So stewardship of the ones we have now and understanding that these two insects really require that kind of a treatment for mitigation um, and the learning curve of the clients that have it. Right. I mean, it's good that you're talking about, you know, some of these control methods that we can use. What control methods, uh, I mean, including fumigation, what control methods would you recommend for the control of this overall stored product beetles? Right. So the the biggest thing to have, and that's a, that, that is the that is what my talk a couple of weeks ago at the National Conference of Urban Entomologists was uh, data versus the control and treatment and how do you measure the success. The first thing first is if we start with control, we're already giving up prevention. So as you know, one of our founding fathers, the, the dude on the $20 bill has said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So everything we do should be trying to prevent as best we can and I'm, you know, industrial commodities that are shipped into our nation. It's a whack-a-mole game and you're never going to get that, but you still have to operate from that facet of just like we talked about warehouse beetle preventing yeah. it from entrance and structure. So that that's the number one. What can we do to stop it before it gets in? But they're going to be in, they're always in. And you and I know, I go to any food facility <laughs> and if you give us enough time and a flashlight and a cracking crevice spatula, we will find a bunch of different life cycles of insects yeah. or rodents. And, you know, we can go through that. It's just a fact of life. I mean, you probably do it in the house. Um, but for control methods, I mean, you, you kind of have that pyramid of IPM, right? So for identification, understand that biology, and you have to put the risk assessment to that insect. Is it a flour mill that just happens to have some warehouse beetle in the middle of summer? 
Well, you and I know flour mills typically don't get infested with trogoderma because there's just the protein link-up isn't there. It's more of the Mediterranean Indian mule moth and then the flower beetles. And then, of course, we could have weevils in the kernels of grain in storage or in process. So those are our main pests. But if we have warehouse beetle, like that's a transient seasonal. It's, it's a feral insect that's probably gaining entry. And then come the cool season of fall, it drops off and you're not catching anymore, which means it's not in the structure and it's not in the commodity because all that stayed the same. So for control methods, the biggest overuse I see is ULV or thermal. And I would argue thermal really doesn't have its place in stored product insect management, thermal fogging applications. I'm talking ULV, ultra low volume, is pyrethroids or synthetic pyrethrins. Uh, those are used probably by far than most any other product. And we now have the most amount of scientific research we've ever had about their ineffectiveness at controlling those insects. And to drill down into that, that doesn't mean the active ingredient doesn't work anymore or it's a tolerant or a resistant thing in holy. It means that the attachment of the microns from that insecticide don't adhere to the insect enough to cause a lethal response. Right. And you know, Dr. Frank Arthur, who retired from USDA, and there's you know Jim Campbell and Deanna Sheff that are there, some really good research scientists have great papers. And I kind of like made it a goal. It was in my talk in Salt Lake City of putting their face up there and hey, we as an industry need to put their information out. I mean, they have these gold nuggets, but it's hard to get it down to the rank and file to understand it. Just case in point, you know, I've been working with a coffee warehouse for two years now of a trial of certain mating disruptant products. And, you know, every five to 30 days and anywhere in between, they've been using a product, Esfenvalorate, which is a synthetic pyrethroid-based, oil-based product. And they're fogging it through a, a fogging system that's installed in the building big drum they add an igr into it and they fog it out i mean the fog looks cool as hell yeah. you can't see it in front of your hand you put your hand in front of you and it disappears i mean it's a heavy fog but it did it does absolutely nothing when you look at their data for the control program i mean the week after the fogging the numbers increase or remain the same so what's the purpose right of ulv fogging to mitigate the exposed stages of adults and larvae of a specific insect well if you did that successfully you'd have pupae, some larvae, some adults, and then eggs. So it would take time to have the reemergence to adults where you can monitor them more successfully in your traditional techniques. And you would be able to gauge that you know, effectiveness. And the problem is, is the, the product's easy to use. It's well known. And it's kind of like the definition of insanity. Uh, we just keep doing it, expecting it to work. Um, so pyrethroids are probably the most overused and ineffective of that residual treatments. For store product pests, you know, if they're in the floor, cracks and crevices or under things, those can be great. You have products like SCs, ECs, wettable, pow wettable powders are best for concrete uh, because it stays on the surface of the concrete, doesn't absorb into it. Yeah. But again, these are insects that are infesting the process or the food. So we can't get the insecticide to them to, to get the efficacy of change that we want. Uh, but it's still certainly a tool. You have growth regulators. Like hydroprene has a very moving molecule, but at the same time, it's only affecting the certain stage of life in the larval form. Uh, you have methoprene, which is the same thing. So you have to get the molecule on them when they're in that stage of life to affect them into an adult or not get into an adult. And those could be a little more, they're a little more what we call like low risk. And even, you know, those growth regulators can be applied to certain things like methoprene and potable water. You don't have to cover food contact surfaces per the label. You know, then we can go to control methods, probably by far the best method you could have. And it doesn't really make us in the pest management industry any wealthier, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. or pat our bottom line is sanitation, right? The ability to remove the insects, vacuum them, clean them, brush them up, clean up your U-channels, turn them upside down, seal out the channels in the warehouse racking, uh, make your stuff hygienically designed so that it, number one, microbial, right? the listeria salmonella, stuff like that. And then the insects are right behind that. So sanitation and then the hygienic design of things is that's, that is your number one thing you can do as far as controlling outside of the identifying, understanding and assessing risk. And then at the end, and this is one where, you know, and you, and you talked about, you know, except for fumigation or, you know, the, the kill stage and fumigation is a kill stage. Uh, it should be used effectively of that. And, uh, it should that should be your target to kill all stages of life 
should you come to that triggering point where you think that's necessary based on either the infestation or your return on investment. But the goal is the kill stage. It's a kill step. Um, for far too long in like my backwards career, we used fumigate and methyl bromide fumigations, right? I'm, you you did hundreds and oh, yeah. if not yeah. thousands of those. I've done hundreds, if not a thousand of those as well. And you're you're doing the one fumigation, you've had great success, you hit all your numbers. And before you leave that job, you're scheduling the next fumigation. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know, I never thought of it for years because that was our life, right? That I mean that those products were so that was that was pest management. And now, you know, in the last, you know, five to nine years, you start thinking, we were doing a kill step at the same time, admitting it wasn't gonna work to do another kill step. So what in the interim did, why, why didn't we do this? Now it's a cultural thing. It's not a pointing of blame at, you know, a manufacturer or a vendor or a pest manager or a client. It's an understanding of a cultural thing of, we get into these cycles of not understanding that. And, you know, just as we talked about with uh, the industry of commodities, you know, California nut industry, you could have some of these commodities fumigated four, maybe five times before it gets to a consumer. And if the goal is truly a kill step, which sometimes doesn't have to be, by the way, you can use fumigation to target like uh, in fluid process to just get exposed stages or adults and larvae, right? I mean, that's a legit, I mean, shoot, you guys manufacture magtoxin, which is a spot fumigant, right? And that's the purpose of that yeah. product is to, uh, to attack those stages of life to give you the chance to work everything else into the program. And by the way, Back in the day, I think we used the most out of almost anyone at some of these job sites. I'm talking like 20, 30 pails of magtoxin. But we're using with the specific known purpose that we weren't going to get the egg. We weren't going to get a kill step. We were going to get a life cycle mitigation tool. Right. So as far as control methods go, you really just got to consider and drill down and, and think, why are we using it? Is it going to be effective? Is it going to give us the result we want? And what are the risks of, of using it, right? Like pyrethroids, overused and now a lot of them don't work as well. Uh, or you're using the wrong, like thermal fogging, the wrong equipment. Uh, number one, you're using a burning element inside of a food manufacturing environment, possibly with dust. Does the client know that? You also have exhaust. Number two, you're burning the active ingredient and blowing it. Those things are amazing for mosquito control. Yeah. Uh, but that's the purpose of them. But they look cool. The fog looks great, but we really want droplet size. There's a lot of science that goes into it. And uh, just think out of the box. Don't always question. I always tell myself this. Why am I going to do this? This is the old mechanic brain on me. Is yeah. there a better way to be doing this. I'm sure with the welding. I mean, by the way, I was not the greatest welder in uh, vocational school. <laughs> Mine was the cutting torch, <laughs> yeah. if you can imagine. <laughs> so I was far better at cutting and uh, melting metal off than welding. But is there a better way to do it and constantly be willing to reassess that? Just don't get into those areas. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and one other thing that I would add to is all of these control methods can be successful if used within certain parameters, you know, like Absolutely. say fumigation, for example. I mean, fumigation is wildly successful. It will kill all life stages if used properly, yes. but it's not a preventative. So if yeah. you have an insect infestation that you need to eliminate, yeah, fumigation can be a key tool to use to eliminate that. But unfortunately, once you've fumigated and you've aerated the fumigant out of the facility and you've got it back down to safe levels, that reinfestation potential immediately starts again because there's no residual effect for fumigation. And that's where prevention, in my opinion, plays a huge part. Is, oh, that's yeah, a... You can get back to square one by using fumigation, but once the fumigation's over, the potential for reinfestation starts all over again. Yep. And the, the best case study I could have to that is in the nut industry. I think it was a year or two ago. It might have been three years someone misidentified foreign grain beetle as a flower beetle. They shut down the structure. They performed a structural and space and commodity fumigation of the entire facility. Now, in the course of that, they took certain things out of the facility that they didn't want to be fumigated, like totes that carried debris and garbage and stuff like that, and they put it in a different area. It wasn't in the fumigation zone. They fumigated. They put everything back to normal, and within a week, they realized they're still having this insect. And finally someone that had a little better specialist knowledge to identify, ID'd this bug as foreign grain beetle, not tribolium species. Well, number one, well, we fumigated for a tribolium. Turned out we didn't have it. Number two, what's foreign grain beetle? That's a <laughs> yeah. fungus and mold fielding. That's a, that's a sanitation pest, right? And they tracked it to the sanitation dumpsters that they cart around the facility. It was infesting those and spreading to other things. 
and they picked it up. So when they brought those totes back in, which weren't fumigated right. because they didn't contain product or anything else, they're they're up. It's a trash vestibule essentially, or animal feed in. They brought the bugs right back in, and they spent a hundred and some thousand dollars plus their downtime, which the labor in that and shutting down a facility is arguably always more than the chemical treatment. Yeah. It didn't solve that problem. So you go right back to that triangle of IPM, if you will, ID that insect. At least you should know uh, the, the subsect or the genre, where, where you're going with it. But that, that was an easy one. And as soon as that bug was sent, that insect was, I always use the word bug. Sorry. It's, you know, no, that's okay. I know they're insects. <laughs> um, and I know you know, but I you know for anyone listening, I always like to tell them, you know, I just speak more commonly, call it my pirate twang. But as soon as it got sent to me in a, a text message, I went, yeah, that's not a flower beetle. And, you know, they're like, yep, that's what we were thinking. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Well, you sound you know, we're talking on text and I'm trying to interpret how someone sounds and they're like, yeah, they just spent a lot of money and uh, <laughs> yeah. it's still there. And I'm like, well, I mean, you got to do your homework. As as you just said, Ben, you, the product worked, the, the control they did, it was a phenomenal fumigation. It's just, they wheeled that bad boy right back in afterwards and let it go back in to structure. Yeah. So have to understand that stuff. Yeah. So in your current role with Trace, you work with a lot of pheromones, uh, you know, pheromone monitoring, things like that. And so I wanted to take an opportunity to kind of change gears just a little bit and ask you about, I know that you work with a technique called mating disruption. And so I was hoping you'd, you know, while I have you, I, I could get you to kind of explain what mating disruption is, how it works, and kind of how the insects are affected. Sure. So uh, mating disruption is the use of specific pheromone chemistry that the insects make up in their own body, usually to cause a sexual response. So it's a female chemistry that she excretes to cause a male to find her to complete the mating cycle. And we have this synthetic pheromone that we recreate in a laboratory chemist environment. We put it in a certain dispensers or substrates that release it into the atmosphere, volume and space. And it does three, and I break things into mode of action because I come from the same world you do, of active ingredients and with pheromones, no one ever really talked about AIs or modes of action, but while they might not be true scientific ones, I have to talk in the language of the people we teach. So, right. you know, we talk modes of action, people might, oh, I understand that from the pyrethroids or neonics or fumigants. I know the modes of action. And the main three modes of action, we break it down to three, right? The biggest one is sensory overload that there are so much of these synthetic pheromones in the volume of space that that insect male physically doesn't know what to do. He's overcome. He sits there and dies. Secondarily is our false trail following, that there's so much pheromone in the air that is synthetic versus the organic coming from the species that he cannot find her and he dies not successfully being able to mate. Number three is our delayed or denied mating. And that one ties to a bunch of different journal of entomological studies and research paper by awesome scientists that every day, and in the case of Indian meal moth, every day you can delay the male from finding the female and mating, you get 20 to 25, and that's a range, percent reduction in fecundity. And fecundity is the amount of fertilized eggs that she'll uh, deposit that will go through and become larvae. Um, so those are the three main modes of action of mating disruption. Now, the biggest thing we fight, unlike, say, a fumigant or a fogging agent, uh, those are killing products, right? So they have to touch the insect or be absorbed into the insect or breathed in, in the case of a fumigant. They get into the insect and cause that insect to die. Whereas the mating disruptant does nothing with killing anything. It just keeps that one quarter of a life cycle from being able to reproduce. So the adults only, and even further to the adult male only. So we have to understand and manage that expectation with clients a lot because they're used to, you did a fogging, you saw some dead, the numbers dropped, yay. You come in with mating disruption, the next day you're gonna catch twice as many. The next week after, you might be three times as many. You're exciting all those males yep. into that population to hit the traps and monitors or see them visually. But on week two to three, you see the dramatic crash. And that's all dependent on the life cycle of that insect, like Indian meal moth. Two to three weeks, we usually see a huge crash. Five to six weeks, we see the reemergence of the unaffected larvae, eggs, and pupae. Because they're going to go through their life cycle still because we're not killing anything. And they're going to emerge. And then we, boom, we mating disrupt them again. And then you start getting that holistic control. Uh, these products were born in agriculture. So apples, 
almonds, walnuts, vineyards, uh, pistachios, pecans, agricultural base for codling moth, navel orange worm, oriental fruit moth. There's a bunch of these ag pests that mating disruption was, you know, I argue it's probably 30 years old now. It's only in the last, since 2007, 2008, that we got the first label to bring it for use in uh, industrial post-harvest pest, which was the Indian meal moth. So that's kind of the little bit of the backstory of mating. So it's it's generally a new way of control and by far a component in that system. It doesn't dissuade the need for any of the other control measures we just talked about, as you did. It adds to the component of it of why. So say, for instance, you're dealing with flower beetles and Indian meal moth. Well, you use mating disruption. Okay, that will deal with some of the Indian meal moth. It doesn't do anything for your flower beetle problem. Right. So you still have to use your control measures and techniques. But at the same time, I've had clients say, well, if I still have to do X, Y, and Z, why use the mating disruption? And I, I always joke and say, well, ask your inspector or auditor that. <laughs> uh, you're willing yeah. to not use a low risk, and in the case of ours, organically certified product to solve a problem, but you're choosing to let it go, not use a product on the market or and I say product, uh, different brands. There's all kinds of different companies that make these things. And I have represent one, but hey, you do your due diligence. You came from the distribution background too and uh, and registrant phase in the last cycle of life before this. So you sold many of things. So I don't like to pigeonhole things in the product pimping. But when they get that conversation piece and they go, oh, like, yeah, I'm not going to go to the auditor and say, well, we're going to accept the Indian meal moth and just put that on the same treatment schedule as flower beetle. Well, you could have used this and got rid of it, but you didn't. But the number one, I would say, technical issue with mating disruption is the managing of a client and the applicator's expectation. Yeah. We come from a see it, kill it mentality. Uh, that's what I was born into in 2004 in this industry is I told you that first job was a methyl bromide fumigation. See it, kill it, move on to the next one. To now we have to culturally understand that I have a tool, kind of like a growth regulator, that's not going to do anything right now. But if I keep after it and keep using it, it's going to have great benefits for the company I'm dealing with and for these insects. And then on the market right now, as far as post-harvest, so stored product insects, uh, on the ag side, there's a ton of mating disruption. On ours, there's Indian meal moth, and that covers the four related species, uh, Mediterranean flower moth, raisin moth, almond moth, and then tobacco or cocoa moth as well. So your two asbestia, two cadre, and then one plodia species are all covered under that one Indian meal moth plus four bubble of mating disruption. Um, and then cigarette beetle mating disruption is being registered and almost all the way through that process in the United States. That's it's great. It's been sold in Japan for about two years now because they have a little more modernization of understanding what pheromones are versus a traditional active ingredient that is uh, toxic. And I say the word toxic. I don't mean like it's a horrible thing. I just mean it, that's how it affects the insect. It's a toxin to the insect by killing it. Um, so it's just a difference of the chemistry and modes of action. But it's funny. It'll act, This product, cigarette beetle made in disruption, will probably be in Australia and New Zealand before it even gets authorized here just because of our process of the EPA is still we're still stuck in an old mentality of every product is treated like a, a toxic insecticide, even though there's no properties to there. So, right. and that's a regulatory conversation for a different day. But hey, we live in the environment we go to. But so, IMM, the four related, and the cigarette beetle are the big ones that are on the market. Uh, warehouse beetle is being considered, but when we talked about that little dude a little earlier, you know, that's a lot longer lived. It consumes food, so. If it lives longer, we have to disrupt it longer. If it right. eats food, well, it's able to sustain itself longer than like say the Indian meal moth male that doesn't have mouth parts. He can't eat anything to sustain his protein content. So he's just going to whittle away and die. And that's that delayed or denied uh, fecundity after day four or five. Even if that male is still alive and finds the female, the chance for him to actually fertilize her eggs is almost zero because it's just not in him based off of the research that day six – he might mate with her, but nothing will happen of it. So uh, with warehouse beetle, that, that's a lot different. Plus, the feral nature of warehouse beetle far surpasses the other two. Um, right. so, so those are the kind of things that go along with that. No, it's good to hear that there's continued research going into mating disruption because I have seen the success rate that mating disruption can offer. And it's pretty astounding at just how well it works if the person is patient enough to allow yep. it to work. Like you said, you know, we're used to that knee-jerk reaction of day one, we do a treatment, day two, we see the results. And it does take that full, complete life cycle before you start seeing 
really kind of like sustained results with mating Absolutely. disruption, but it does work and it works very, very well. Yep. And the, and the first time I, w- I had the chance to use it, as I'm talking about reluctancy and culture, I didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was in 2008 in Ohio, or a technical person, an entomologist, one of my mentors, we had no choice. We had, we had a, we a large bakery. They couldn't shut down. They couldn't clean food contact enough. So we had to rule out certain products. They didn't have the shutdown schedule, so I had no choice but to try it. And I didn't want to believe it would work. I'm, I mean, I saw what fumigants did and what fogging agents and active ingredients. And, you know, I believed our, our technical specialists, but it's just a, it's a bias. And uh, we put it in and, you know, 30 days later, you know, saw the result and the facilities, you know, happy. They're like, wow, we can't believe. It. And I'm just like, you know what I want to do is pull it out and see if it comes back, if it yeah. was just masking the problem. <laughs> so I, at, at like four months, I'm like, okay, well, we're going to remove it. We're going to go another four months. We'll maintain monitoring. We'll see what's up. And the bakery director said, you don't ever remove that from this facility. <laughs> it's part of this program from perpetuity. And I'm like, but I want to know the science behind it. Like it's new to me. I, I want to play with it. I want to understand it. And I'm very invested in this program. He said, don't you do it, James. Yeah. And I said, you're the boss. So the pheromone guy that works for Trace and, you know, Sidetrack is here telling you that in 2008, I didn't even want to use it. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand hundred percent when I meet with a client or do an educational session and someone's like, but like you just said, the patients, I'm like, I, I, I was there. I, I literally got to live that experience and then go forward. And now I'm on that other side and it's still, I have a phone call later today to discuss this very same thing. It's, it's back to managing expectations. And the best conversation I had recently was with someone in the coffee industry. And uh, they said, well, why at month three during mating disruption did my insects increase? And I was like, okay, well, I can answer that directly or we could have a more philosophical discussion. And I'm always going to, if I have time, try to go to that side because answering it directly doesn't really bring them to water, right? It gives them the water. Right. What I decided to say is, okay, so say you did your fogging or your fumigation. As soon as that's aerated and cleared and safe for humans to come in, you restart your operation and you bring in 10 truckloads. You put them into your warehouse and they're infested. You catch them in your traps. Did that fogging or fumigation solve the problem? after it was aerated. And they go, of course not. There's, it's not in there anymore. We're not doing the fumigation. We're not doing the fogging. There's no residual controls, right? I said, right. So now you have mating disruption around the facility, which attacks the adult male only of the entire life cycle. You have that throughout three months in. Now you bring in 10 trailers of high infested product with Indian meal moth. Those are all in their existing life cycle and go into that structure. They're going to hit pheromone traps. You're going to see them. They're going to bring eggs, larvae, different instars, pupation, and then the adults. And we're going to need to have time to attack that male again. So in the case of, say, the fumigant being the kill step and then it's gone, the mating disruptant, it's always there. But it's going to have to, again, like you said, your patience and time to build up to solve that problem. But more in what I said to, what I said to this person, which was even better – If you've inspected the trailer and found the infestation, you could have prevented it and kept it in the trailer and used other control methods and not brought all that life cycle in. Right. So it's a catch-22. And she sat back and went, so you didn't give me the easy answer. You gave me the hard answer. And I'm (laughs) like, of course. Well, that is my job, right, to to promote the thought because the world she's lived – I mean, coffee is a billion-dollar industry in this nation. Um, and these warehouses are packed with it and they're, it's, it's all pennies and dollars and some of it's not owned, but it took that for her to finally, okay, understand it. And I'm not joking. I literally had to write an email again this morning of reiterating the same thing to her vice president. So at the end of the day, you have that conversation point of, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but at the same time, it's, it's just, they're stuck in a, a role of not understanding that. So that's a key takeaway that I like to have of adding, you know, life experience to it. Sure. So what advice would you give somebody that's new to the stored product pest control industry about both identifying and controlling stored product beetles? The same advice I'd give to a parent versus a grandparent. You want your seasoned veterans and specialists to help 
craft you in your new phase of life. Uh, so I want my children to interact with their grandparents as much as possible because there's things I could never learn or teach them. Uh, and there's different ways of doing it. I know you're a grandfather. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, say, same thing goes when I, I was lucky enough when I came into the industry, cause let's, okay, let's face it. Licensing and applicators, licensed commercial registering technician. That's a litmus test. That yeah. is not, yeah. that is not really teaching you to do something. That's making sure you don't hurt someone else or yourself, right? In a nutshell and steward the product correctly. I mean, essentially don't hurt anybody. So, I mean, it's a liability write-off. So just throw that out there. You have to do it because it's regulation and law, but get with your seasoned people. So I came into an industry where the territory manager was a legend as far as building up that area and fumigation. And the, the managers under him were amazing. It's just a curtilage of the generational ability for him to on the job learn and take his time. But understand that you're going to make a lot of wrong decisions. Understand that you need to be very blunt with clients when you don't know. You could very well say, and technicians had a problem with this. Well, if I say I don't know in front of a customer, isn't that showing them I don't know what I'm doing? No, if you just say I don't know, but you say, you know, I'm really, I'm kind of working through this problem here and I'd like to get one of our specialists involved to bring them in to help answer this and to make sure we really put our best foot forward first. Is that okay with you? No client is ever going to say, no, you can't bring in a specialist and help me solve my problem better. <laughs> right. you know, they're never going to say that. But at the same time, you're essentially telling them, you know, I don't feel comfortable enough answering this wholly right now. So I'm going to bring in wiser people that may have a different perspective of that. And, you know, the open mind in life. I, I am a very big proponent on education, on continuing learning, uh, as I know you are with what you're doing here with these podcasts and the new endeavor you have. I, as soon as you mentioned it, I'm like, yep, I'm in. I just got to yeah. make sure our boss is cool <laughs> with it because it's spreading that knowledge and having those conversations. But don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't lie. Don't be afraid to not know the answers and just understand. I mean, these things, I've, I've been doing this now almost 19 years. You're at 20 years. And today I'll still learn something I didn't know yesterday Absolutely. and then the day before. So, uh, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm in a room full of PhDs and board certified entomologists at a national conference of urban entomology giving a presentation. I would have never thought 20 years ago you would have put me in front of a room of these. I mean, Dr. Bobby Corgan, Dr. Denny Miller. Uh, there's a plethora of other ones that are there, uh, you know, and I'm in front adding to the debate and conversation based off of my experience. So keep asking questions, keep going forward. Um, and the coolest part about our industry, and I know you didn't ask that, but it's still advice for someone new in to it. This industry, you truly do have a career for life. And, you know, I dare I say recession proof to an extent, if you will, uh, the pandemic kind of proved that our industry grew. I'm sure yours did as well. Oh, yeah. Like it's just people need to control insects and people need to eat clean sanitary food. So that's not going to end. And as far as like identifying insects, whew, that's a tough one. And that's probably the the worst part of training that I've had because I don't like to sit in a room and go slowly, methodically through that process, but I force myself to. And the other thing is ask that question for the people teaching you, what are field expedient ways that help me identify these insects? So I never liked my technicians trying to determine red first confused. It didn't really matter at the end of the day for our control, for our plan, for anything else. Yeah. And I thought it was a misuse of their time. If they're going to, if they have 50 flower beetles in a pheromone trap, oh, 30 could be one species, 20 could be another, it could be 49 to one. That didn't really matter in the scheme of things. So we, we changed our protocol and we just call them flower beetles for that purpose because it's, it ends justified those means. So, you know, don't get tied up in some of those. Some of those you absolutely have to because we found undocumented species of insects where we've had to get USDA and the Smithsonian involved just to give us a, a snapshot into what they could be and they came back as un, undocumented species. So it was cool stuff like that, but you know, you can't guess on those things. So, but ha have an open mind, be willing to have conversations, get with the, I don't like to say older generation because you're not a very old person, even though you're a grandpa <laughs> now, but like the seasoned veterans and the professionals, there's always tips, tricks, ways, and things you can learn from these people and just be open to that. No, I couldn't agree more. There's so many people that I've learned from in, in this industry myself uh, through my career. And by the way, what a wonderful career to be in. If you would have asked me 25 years ago <laughs> if I would have ever been in this industry, I would have laughed at you. But 100%, dude. Boy, 100%. Has it, it has treated me well. 
treated my family well, and it was the best career decision I could have ever made for myself all those years yep. ago when I got into it. Yep. So salt yeah. of the earth people in this industry. That's the thing. I've I've meet so many amazing people. Just on the phone with someone out of North Carolina State University, and she's in their outreach, uh, you know, helping the residents of North Carolina answer problems, neither homes or commercial. And she's doing national pest management talk and asking me some questions because they want to do furthering of stored product pest. And uh, here's a doctor that knows her craft, willing to ask someone else questions. So I'm, I am on no way her a wavelength as far as education, but she's willing to ask because that's our industry. It's just, it's cool to see the, the entomologist side, the urban entomologist, the pest managers, the distributors, the manufacturing vendors. It's unlike anything else. It, in, in a, and I'm sure you've heard this term coming from distribution. It's old world, right? Yeah. The Amazon thing doesn't exist in our world. It's still a your distributor, your vendor, you, what you're doing right now, your outreach to those clients and your, it's still interconnected old world and, and we still get it and live in this and in, in vibe in it. Yeah, and and you keyed in on some of the most important things too. Some of the advice that I always give people when they ask me, which is you know remain open minded, and remain inquisitive. Uh, yep. And I mean that that carries you so far. And you're you're absolutely right. Earlier when you said you know it's okay to not know the answer to a question. And the wonderful thing is is there are plenty of people in our industry that may know that answer. And as long as you remain open-minded and inquisitive, you will always be able to be supplied the answer to that question. Absolutely. So, well, James, that's all I had, man. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to uh, join me on the podcast. This has been absolutely terrific. Well, hey, thank you, Ben. I Again, when you reached out and said it, I was like, of course. Now let me check with the boss. Um, so any any chance to do this. And uh, man, I appreciate what you're doing for the industry. I appreciate the outreach. I mean, there can never be enough education on this subject and open discussion. And the fact that you're bringing it with this, uh, kudos to you. Thank you for dedicating your time and uh, energies to this. And for uh, Decia Degas Group as, for allowing you and structuring it to do this. That's big on a manufacturer to put that much skin behind outreach and education. So thank you guys. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. I want to thank James for speaking with us today about the most common stored product beetles we see in our industry. It's important to be able to identify these pests and to have insight into their habits and lifestyles in order to control them. On the next episode of Dagish America Presents, we'll be talking about another type of pest we see daily, rodents. And remember, if you have a question you'd like for us to answer, feel free to email us at podcast at Or you can also find us on our website at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And so, until next time, I'm Ben Harl, and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.